Welcome back to the Dare to Dream podcast. I'm Gregory Russell Benedict. And I am Vincent Van Patten. And this is episode 42. The Dare to Dream podcast is a podcast for people who want to get the absolute most out of life and who dare to dream bigger. So today we have a very special guest. Uh, this is my father, Vincent Van Patten, the original, <laughs> and a man who's inspired me through his daily actions and just because of the person that he is to really follow my dreams. And today we're going to get into you know, what you've done to create the life that you truly love and the life that you can be proud of living every single day. So welcome to the show, Pops. It's hey, great to have you here. Thanks, you guys. This is great. <laughs> Love it. Really excited. And first of all, just Dare to Dream, the whole podcast is brilliant because so many people in the world have lost their dreams. So for what you guys are doing, you're inspirational. So let's just start with that. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, how about we start with just the first time that you realized that life wasn't going to just come to you. You had to go and make it for yourself. What was that first jumping off point? I think I have an idea, but obviously want to hear from you. Yeah, well, I was uh, in Long Island. Uh, I was a kid actor, nine years old, and my father was an actor, and his agent came by the house and said, oh, your kids, Jimmy and, and Vinny and Nell, do they want to become actors? They have a nice look. Maybe they do commercials, make some money. So my father said, I don't know. Do you want to? I said, would I get out of school? He says, yes. I go, I'm in. <laughs> Anyway, from that day on, I started working a lot. So did Jimmy, my brother. And I was always in work as a child actor. And from the age of 9 to 18, 19, I was never out of work. But the question really is, uh, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> what was the first? So that was different than what I expected because, you know, you're a kid. Yeah. You have dream. We all have dreams. But they're kind of, after a while, we are... Um, our dreams just become less important or just less realistic because of what kind of the world tells us is possible. Well, and well, well the thing was, was that it, my dream all of a sudden was as a kid, I had a dream. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm working as an actor. I'm excited. I'm working with the biggest stars in the world. So all of a sudden I was, I'm going to become an actor for the rest of my life. This is a great life. So I didn't have to work at it so much. It just happened. And then later on, when I was older, 18, 19, when I was washed up in the acting business, because that's how it happens. You work for a while, then you get burnt out. And then I went into the tennis field. And, uh, and that was always a dream because at the same time as a junior tennis player, I loved tennis and I, I got better and better, but I was never that good. But I did have a dream of becoming great. And I hid that from other people. And I'll tell you a quick story that it goes to show you how you have to believe in yourself and uh, you have to build up other people, I believe. Because when I'm 14 years old, I'm not that good of a junior. I'm pretty good. And I'm hanging out with all these juniors that are better than me, tennis juniors. So just to interrupt yeah. quickly. So you're, you're an actor, but you're already interested in tennis. Yes. And okay. playing all the time and playing in junior tournaments, but I'm not ranked. And I'm hanging out with these other kids that are ranked and we're all sitting around. We went bowling after a tennis session or something like that. And we went bowling and everybody was saying, they were asking each other, what are you going to do when you grow up? And one guy said this and that. And they asked me and I said, I'm going to become a tennis pro. And they all started laughing and like, yeah, you can't do that. You can't do that. And from that day on, I kind of swore to myself, I can do it. I'm going to do it. And it took years and years of overcoming. But I, I think that was one of the reasons why I made it in tennis, you know, top 25 in the world, was that I got pushed around and was told I couldn't do anything. No one gave me one bit of inspiration or one, hey, you can do it. And I was self-taught in tennis too. 
that shows me that anything is possible. If you believe in it, if you have the talent, you stick in it long enough. And that's when I see kids today, young kids, I like to really encourage them to do anything they believe they can do. So it sounds like you had a chip on your shoulder and that was kind of the fuel source, what you went to when you needed to motivate yourself, push yourself. It was, I'm going to prove all these people wrong who laughed at me. Sadly, <laughs> you're right. An angry young guy getting beat up on the tennis court, getting pushed around the world, not knowing who you really are. When I went back to school from the, the sets that I was on, you know, I didn't have many friends because I was out of the loop and everything. And you take your hits as a kid. And so, but yes, there was this certain anger that, hey, I can't even get a tennis match with someone that's ranked a little bit ahead of me because there was tremendous snobbery. And uh, so that made me, I want to get back at them. And that kind of fuels you, which is maybe not the greatest way to get there, but it helped, it worked for me. And it's interesting. We, you know, people that we've had on the show, we don't, I guess with, with Dan, not as much athleticism, but going for your dreams for all the athletes listening and want to go pro, this could just be huge. And using, you know, that anger perhaps, or just inspiration as motivation to like be your own coach. Cause you were entirely self-taught and nobody gave it to you. No. You just tell the stories of like working on the backboard when yeah. you were a kid and just, you told yourself, why don't you tell it? Yeah, no, because uh, I played on the backboard because I couldn't even get a game, a practice game. I was self-taught. And, uh, but I, I think even if I didn't make it, because you can say to anybody, you know, go after your thing and maybe they won't make it and maybe you won't make it as a tennis pro but you'll figure out who you are and you'll become a stronger person from those defeats so i would have landed someplace else and then after my tennis career was over after 10 years you know i was successful with it i came back to hollywood and everything wasn't that easy i didn't get work you know i was considered washed up and i couldn't get work so i decided I'm going to try to write, write screenplays. I love screenplays. I love movies and write my own stuff. And that's what I did. And that took years of rejections and numerous screenplays and until finally you can raise the money and I raised money to make a film that I, that I enjoyed and, and it was quite good. And at the same time, I played a lot of poker. I taught myself how to play good poker and winning poker so that I could win and survive in the world of Hollywood while you're waiting for your screenplay or whatever you're going to do. So uh, it's kind of a survival instinct. My father always told us, you know, just get tough. It's going to be tough. No one's going to give you anything. You get nothing for nothing. So work hard and do what you love. So all the things I do, I do love them. So even though I've had failures and everything, I still love pursuing them. And that's definitely stuff I, I want to get into. Um, I mean, it's project after project for you. And even if they don't hit, you're always thinking about the next one because you genuinely are just inspired to keep creating and doing what you love. But there's a lot in the tennis that I, I want to dive into. What was the first time when you actually felt like, wow, I am actually, I have a shot at this? Well, I was playing these college kids at Pepperdine. I was pretty good. I'm about 19 years old, but I'm not really ranked high in Southern California. I have no, no one ever said you have a shot at making the pros, but I was on the borderline of the satellites and I was practicing with the Pepperdine team and they're very good top team. And then one day the coach came out and said, uh, Vinny, you can, you can't practice here anymore. I said, why not? Because you're just not good enough for my guys. And that hit me again, like getting told that you can't do something. So I said, really? I said, I'll bet you I could beat anybody on this team. He goes, oh, really? And now the, the other kids are gathering around. And they go, let me at him. Let me at him, coach. He goes, really? I go, yeah, I bet $100. You know? Okay, we're going to put you against Mo. And they put me up against the guy that's ranked four on the team. And my anger's coming out. I, know, I think I could beat him. I know I'm playing close to these guys. Long story short, 
three-hour match. I lose 7-5 in the third. Dusk, I walk away, give the $100 up. I could never go back there. And two months later, it drove me to a place of passion and fire, I swear. I was in this local tournament. There was a semi-pro tournament, and I played their number. In the third round, I played their number five guy on the team, beat them. Then the next round, I beat their, their number two guy on the team. And in the final, I beat their number one player on the team to win this major college tournament. And from that day on, I said, I can do it. I can do it. And so I continued to progress into the professional world of tennis. But once again, a story of uh, getting told you can't do it sometimes make you want to do it real bad. So then what was the point when you made it to the pros? How, what was the actual... The, crossing crossing the threshold yeah yeah I, I mean i got a lot of different bridges that i could tell you about but i'll try to make it short but uh you know i was supposed to do a movie called players where i was promised the lead role opposite ali mcgraw i was 19 years old bob evans from paramount said vinnie you're going to get this part and hold off and and do it so i said great maybe i have an acting career still and long story short the last minute they didn't use me they used dino martin dean martin's son and he's a little bit older, five years older, so he was more right for it. But I didn't get the part, so I go, screw it, I can't get, a, I can't get an acting part. I'm going to go over to the qualifying of Wimbledon. Maybe I'll get into the qualifying. <laughs> and so I went over three weeks early to play the prep tournaments. I got into these prep tournaments, never won a match. Couldn't get a practice match with any pro. It was raining every day in Manchester and Chickchester. I get to the Wimbledon qualifying. I'm not supposed to get in because I only have like two ATP points. But I somehow, somebody falls out and I get into the qualifying. This is my dream. I'm going to qualify now. I win my first round. You have to win three rounds. I win my first round. Win my second round at the Quimbledon qualifying. Third round, again, I lose 7-5 in the fifth to Charlie Fancutt. And I'm not going to make it. So I figure, oh, I'm really depressed. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. The next day I go, at least I'll go to Wimbledon. It starts. I'll go over there and and, and watch the players. I go in, I try to get in, I can't get a ticket. I look inside and they push me away. They say, no, you can't get in here. I look in there and they're shooting the movie Players on Stadium Court with Dino Martin. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay, that's it. I quit. I went home to LA. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I quit tennis for about six weeks. Just, you know, just was all upset. And then for some reason, I dragged myself back out there in the fall. I said, I'm going to play a couple of qualifying tournaments. Didn't do that well. Goes to show you, this is a long story, I'm sorry. And then yeah, eventually the next summer, I went on a circuit and I got hot and I won all these tournaments. And I went from my ranking of being 800 in the world to 40th in the world. And that summer I became the ATP Rookie of the Year. And from there on, I had a big career. So I think the wow. moral of your life is perseverance. For some reason, you always get back up and keep going and you kept getting better at it. What, what else do you have to do? What I mean, is, yeah, what's, what is the, the fire that always drove you? Where do you think that came from? Uh, no, uh, loving, this, loving what you do. Love tennis. Love the feeling of winning. The competition in, in tennis. I felt like I had the edge, mental edge. I thought I maybe had a physical edge. So I kept saying, why am I losing? And studying, why am I losing? How can I beat these guys? Maybe if I get one more ball back in the court, they'll make that mistake. So figure out the sport or whatever you're doing. So I figured it out. Um, I don't know. If the tennis, tennis didn't work out, maybe it'll be something else. But you got to put your heart and soul into anything you do. And usually you'll come out on top or get through it at least if you do. Do you think it was the fact that you loved tennis so much that allowed you to handle adversity and setback and setback after one another without beating yourself up? I mean, I would love to just hear 
about the self-talk and how you were handling the kind of crushing defeats and especially that that story you said where you're at Wimbledon and you can't get in and then you see that they're filming <laughs> the movie that you almost had the lead part in. What was the self-talk like? Well, I, we grew up in Long Island and I went to Forest Hills at age nine years old and I watched Arthur Ashe play in front of me and I, a beautiful stadium court at Forest Hills. Uh, it was the West End Tennis Club and on, on uh, grass court. And I watched Jimmy Connors and Chris Everett and all these greats. And then six years later, I'm playing with them. I mean, and it's the dream of I got good enough to play these guys and then beat them. Later on, I was beating these idols of like Ily Nastasi and Gottfried and Gerolitis. I was beating the same guys I watched when I was a kid. So I fell in love with the game of the great players, the old stadiums they used to play at, even more so than the ones today. So there is a true love of the game, and it keeps drawing you back, mm. at least me. There's a romantic, romantic affinity. Mm. It's a beautiful thing. It's yeah. a beautiful thing. And yeah, what you've, I mean, I like what you said before, just what else do you have to do besides get back up and, and keep trying, putting your heart and soul into it? If you're lucky enough to be able to pursue something without having, you know, a lot of people maybe don't have that freedom and they have to do certain jobs. They can't do their dreams. It's best you can try to find that way because it is important and uh, doesn't mean guaranteed success, but you might be happier. You, know? mm -hmm. you probably will be. I think what Greg was getting at is like what, what went through your mind when you had to tell yourself to get back up and go again? Like what was the self-talk? Yeah. Self-talk is, uh, I'll show them, <laughs> sadly, right? There's a lot of that, uh, yeah, you don't think, I'll, sh I'll show, I can do it, I can do it. What's it going to be like when I do get there? Won't that be fun? And then you get a taste of a win, and the taste of a victory, there's nothing like it. When you win in a tennis match, first of all, tennis as a sport is the most pure sport in the world. There's no luck involved. If you win, you deserve it. That's the greatest thing about it. It's not like ice skating or gymnastics where, or you could be a favorite at a certain sport and the coach picks you over somebody else when you're very close. There's none of that. And that's why through my career when I was a junior, I was not getting the best rankings in Southern Cal. Maybe they didn't like me. Maybe I was that rebel that they just didn't, I, I didn't get along with anyone. And so I never really was, until it counted and they had the ATP system. And then they can't mess with you. If you win the matches, they give you the points and you deserve that ranking. It is such a beautiful thing. So it's a, such a pure sport. And if you're good and you're a little bit better than someone, you'll beat them. There's no, the luck involved is maybe 1%, if that, on a given day, which I love. Okay, one last question about dealing with the setbacks is, was there ever a time where you, instead of saying, I'm going to show them, I'm going to show them I, I'm better than them, I can beat them. Was there ever a time when you genuinely questioned your ability and you thought, okay, maybe I'm not good enough? Of course, a lot, a lot. Because when you get beat in tennis too or any sport, you think, I'm terrible that day. I mean, even in practice sessions, you, you take it so hard because you're trying to win. You lose in practice, you go, maybe I'm not as good as, as I thought. And then two days later, you come out and you win, you go, I'm better than that guy. It's, it's a roller coaster ride. Tennis is a roller coaster ride. And that's why when I play now, I take practice right off the table the best that I can. If, I, if I'm practicing with anybody young and I want to give them advice, practice means nothing. Play a ball that's a foot out. It doesn't matter. I want you to lose that day. I don't want to get you into the, the, the realm of thinking, if, if I win, I'm a winner. Mm -hmm. If I lose that day in practice, I'm a loser. That, you can't have that. To get better, you have to have a long progression of get steady, 2% a year better, and then you become a great player. 
I didn't necessarily have that. I went on the roller coaster. I'd have been even better if I had the right mentality. So I think that could be taught. Hmm. What do you think you learned from, obviously a lot, but from your dad about just going for your dreams and how did he show you just through being the type of person that he was that anything was possible? Did he? Well, your <laughs> grandfather, Dickie, was an amazing person. He was a child actor. He had natural talent, a, a gift from God, and he never stopped working his entire life. And then he was washed up after he did I Remember Mama, a TV series in the 50s for nine years. And then for about eight years, he couldn't get arrested in New York. And then he made a comeback. <laughs> he and, tried. Yes. But he didn't want to do anything else, really, but go to the racetrack and bank on his acting. Uh, but basically, he gave me no advice. You know, we were never told, you got to get great grades in school. You got to do homework. They just let, they, I don't even know where they were. They just, <laughs> if we you just, just don't fail, right? So we tried very hard not to fail. I got through high school with no effort, you know. You could tell me what your high school tennis coach told you. Um, well, well I, lots of things, but yeah, lots of things. I actually I was playing in high school, and Nels, my brother, was ahead of me on the team, and we were weren't a very good team in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. And uh, I did eventually get kicked off the team. <laughs> I did get in a car accident uh, like three hours prior on a nutrition break, and I came back. And anyway, it was it was partially my fault too. But he did say you're off the team, and so I didn't play the final year. In, in high school, but there was once a teacher that my father said, okay, I think you guys should have a tennis lesson. We're about 14 years old. And we get this lesson in Southern California from this guy named Steve. We hit for an hour, my brother and I, with the coach. At the end of it, my father was very eager. And he said, so what do you think? How good can they be? The guy says, well, if they practice every day for the rest of their life, they could become eh, good club players. <laughs> That's the type of non-encouragement you can sometimes get from fools. I think, I think there's a lot of foolish people out there that don't, that maybe they don't see it. I don't know, but they've been idiots not to see that we had real potential to be at least good college players, maybe professional. But why, why put somebody's dream down anyhow? Mm -hmm. You know, if young kids are playing, I think anything's possible. You love that game. You can do it. And didn't you just, you didn't make the tennis team, right, one year? That's the Michael Jordan story. Uh, well, I got, no, I made the team because it was not a great team. But I was not a great high school player, and ah. I did get kicked off the team. And, uh, uh, and then years later, actually, when I came back and I was like 25 in the world, the coach and I hadn't talked, but they did call me up and they said, would you come back to Van Nuys High and do an exhibition, right? And I did, ah. and because I didn't want to hold a grudge, and I don't hold a grudge today. And, you know, things are crazy. When you're a young kid, you can do stupid things. I'm sure I did many but I played that exhibition. It was nice to go back to Van Nuys High and play an exhibition after I did make it on the tour. Yeah. Shout out to Van Nuys High. Yeah. What do you think your, your tennis perseverance, just how, how did it carry you through the rest of your life so far? And you still got projects ahead of you, so just getting started. But yeah. from what you've done after that, I just that think mentality. I'm lucky that uh, I, I made it in, the, in, in poker, and I'm a poker announcer now and host. Uh, I taught myself how to play, and I played for years and years and years, so that work paid off. Timing was right. So you gotta have luck too. Timing was right there. I'm writing a lot now. Some of my movies are good, but didn't make it as a big film, but I'll continue because I like to be creative. So I'm just uh, always trying to do things I like and trying to just support the family and just, you know, and do well. It's fun. I love the mindset. It seems like you just have such a learning mindset and you're okay with not having every deal you're working on or every project you're working on hit. You're just constantly learning and teaching yourself new things. And 
I want to ask what, I mean, you're such an incredible storyteller. I want to keep the stories coming. What has been one of the fondest memories from your mid twenties outside of tennis? Uh, well, first of all, even with tennis, even though I had some great highs and lows and great highs, really fun. Uh, I wasn't that happy because I was in a total struggle. My twenties, I was not happy and I had broken up uh, with a, a girl I was in love with and uh, had, so when I was out there partying and meeting a lot of girls, I still wasn't, I wasn't giving my whole self. And so in your 20s, you're, you're messed up. You can be. And I don't think I was at my clearest at all. And, and then I met your mother, Betsy, and uh, we got married and had two kids, you know, Vinny and, and Duke. And that changed my life around. Just having those kids was the greatest time of my entire life. And just raising them changed my life. And I've never been happier since I've had the kids. And I'm just saying that because that's you're here, <laughs> but that's true. I mean, I was blessed and lucky to have that happen, and uh, yeah, I would say that's it. Twenties were a bit of a dark age. You seemed on top of the world, but it was tough. The stories from, why don't you tell just one from like uh, from England when you were trying those qualifiers, like Manchester, just yeah. you out there. How lonely and dark it really got. Yeah, because you don't see now. I'm older and. I have a more of a support system and I'm, I'm happy. I'm content. I know I got people around me and family around me. I have kids that, you know, we have a great relationship, but when you're young and I didn't have that and you're out there on your own, it can get very dark and very troubling. You know, some people, it didn't. Some young guys on the tennis court are very, they have a great support system. They had it down and that's terrific. Mine wasn't like that. My life had to change. I had to learn many lessons to get to the point where, I could be married and have kids and a family life and be happier. But uh, I think for everybody, you're not confident until you really get to know yourself and uh, know what you want in the world a little bit more and have some successes, don't you think? Yeah, and definitely through those difficult, lonely times, you learned about who you were. Those are probably your most profound lessons weren't from the great victories, but from the lowest lows that you went through. Yeah. I went through a very big low in 1984 <laughs> after the U.S. Open. I really did. Uh, or 86, I forget what it was. But after I lost the Open, I was so down and so depressed. Because I thought I was going to win it. I lost to McEnroe two years in a row in the third round. And he was number one in the world. And I thought I was going to win. But I got so down on myself, I wanted to quit the game. And I did quit the game too early because it was just too much of an emotional roller coaster. And so I, I quit at like age 30, 31. And that's like young today to quit. And, and I blame it also on the press and the people at the time, because at the time, the press is always saying, oh, so you're 30, so when are you going to retire? They always put that in your mind. No one ever, I never had the right coaching or management to say, what, retire? You could get better. At 37, you're going to be the player. I wish I had that. A lot of people do. But now they have great teams around them that really give them the, the, the uh, mental support and or the physical support and just pumping them up. And, and that's great because uh, it's going to be a lot healthier for tennis players all around and all athletes. Mm -hmm. But I didn't quite have that. So I got out of the game, uh, but moved on. And it's a lot easier when I got out of the game because it was tough for me, even though it was exciting. And then I went into a new chapter and became a lot more fun. Hmm. But thinking about, actually wrote about this uh, this week. It's part of the, the ancient samurai creed, um, like 14th century. Part of it is just, Make your mind your friend. And in everything you do, your mind could either run away from you and tell you the worst possible things, or it could be your biggest supporter, and that's 
I mean, what it, I'm not sure if it was for you at, during those times, but to make your mind your friend is it can really get you through the lowest lows when you're out there by yourself and it gets lonely and in everything we do, just how to turn your mind into your greatest ally and your coach. Your mind has to be there to support you through it all. I think that's a great point. And I think, see, I wanted it in the beginning. I wanted to, I want to get back at them and I want to prove myself. And then eventually you make it and you go, now I want it for all of the world. Now I want it to be the best. I want it to make the money and to get any girl you want, you know, that type of thing for all the glory. And that's not really the right thing for me to be doing. And, uh, and I look back spiritually and I go, you know, I made, <laughs> I was not in the right place. That shouldn't have been it. It should have just been for a different reason to be the best I could be and also give back to the world and to be good to people and really show that other side. I learned that later on. So I think there, there was a reason why there was a crash and why it was at, at the end I went, I got to run away from this because I didn't have the right attitude spiritually. Mm -hmm. And I got that. I learned that. And so everything I do now, I go, I don't care if I fail because I spiritually, I'm happy. I'm happy, which is, a, you know, it's a much better thing to be happy, as we all know. Yes, absolutely. And I actually just listened to a podcast with Aubrey Marcus and Tom Bilio this morning, and they were talking about just as you were alluding to in the beginning there, they called it their fuel source, like the motor that was running their life and pushing them forward was probably burning coal. It was it was dirty. They were using the desire to get back at other people to prove people wrong as their fuel source. And that took them to a certain point. But then you get to the point where you realize you need you need something else to motivate you. And so maybe you switch from a coal burning engine to solar power. And that's the more like clean energy of I'm doing this for other people. I'm doing this to inspire kids. I'm doing this to kind of give back to the world. But what I'm taking away from that podcast and then also what you said is it's okay to use that fire in you, to use kind of that negative energy to get you towards your goal. You just need to realize that that's not sustainable and that eventually you need to make the switch to be happy and to like be, be a little easier on yourself. So true. So true. I think... Uh with Dickie, just as an example, through all of his failures, he, you know, when he was washed up as an actor and then went into real estate, he, I mean, I wasn't there, but it seems like he never lost his joy throughout it all. He was always had a good attitude that he could make it. And that's what made him successful in real estate even. That's very true. My father, your grandfather, even when he was uh, not doing that well, he did have a joy about just jumping in the ocean and doing good things in life and having a good family life and going to the racetrack. And so he didn't, you know, he wasn't that miserable. But there was a bit of him being miserable. But uh, and when he made it again on Eight Is Enough, he did the series Eight is, and other shows, of course. You know, he was happier. But my mother says, eh, maybe you know, he was still had his moments where, you know, he was an interesting character. Um, right. A lot of different sides to him, but uh, overall, ooh, a great life. And he always, always learned, be humble, be appreciative of what you have. He, so even if he didn't have anything, he was, he's in the United States of America. He's lucky that he was brought up and has a job and a shot at something, you know? So he had that great, humble appreciation of just life, which is good. Oh, and that's, that's absolutely the essence that I get from hanging with you, Vinny, and from reading your book. I mean, that was like the main takeaway for me from Eras of Youth, and I think you just said it perfectly, is regardless of how life is going and your external circumstances, you can always go on a walk in nature. You can always jump in the ocean. And reading that book is just such a breath of fresh air because it really shows you that regardless of what's going on, 
you have so much. There's so much to be grateful for. Thanks, buddy. Well, I appreciate that. And yeah, I think that like even just what I write about on a weekly basis, it's like I've just been writing about my daily walk. I've written like five articles in a row about it and just jumping in the ocean and like just the it's really about just finding joy in the simple things that no matter what happens in the rest of life, you could always return to a jump in the ocean, which I get from Dickie and the family, his father before um, Big Dick, as we call him. <laughs> uh, the ocean will always be there, you know. Friends will always be there, family. I mean, hopefully. But a lot of times you'll be by yourself and you have to find ways to find joy through the struggle and through the pain and return to the things that nobody could take from you. You know, nature, love, sunshine. Those are the things I keep returning to, to to find a well of inspiration. And definitely get that from you, Pop. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, not to get religious, or but spiritually, you know, I believe there's God and I believe in uh, that we were all put here for a reason. And uh, you're supposed to, you know, not worry about what you're going to do, your accomplishments. You've got to worry about just be good to others. It'll all come back to you. I and mean, it's amazing how, to, how many times I've been saved in my life where everything was going wrong and then it all came back. And I believe that's from God. Uh, I'm blessed. Uh, I feel, you know, if you get that, you feel like there's a, a comfort zone that you'll never really be totally lost. You'll Very be true. Yeah. Very true. And I, I don't know if our generation is kind of struggling to, to find that greater connection. I know it's something we, we grapple with, um, just spirituality and religion and what we believe in. But I believe in some sort of source that, you know, has our best interest in mind and whatever happens we'll make it through and through those low points we'll be stronger for it great yeah absolutely so i want to keep the stories coming because they're phenomenal and so we've kind of alluded to what was after tennis it sounds like a bit of poker but i would love to hear what that next chapter was after tennis yeah so after tennis screenplays and i wrote a screenplay called the break made the movie raised the money raised the made the movie about a tennis player or his coach and a young kid and it's a comedy and martin sheen was in that radon chong we made that in 1994 did very well and along the way though i did get very much involved in poker and playing and creating and the bit one of the biggest games in the world and it went from the san fernando valley to beverly hills and the game got bigger where you could lose it a thousand dollars a night to fifty to a hundred thousand a night, and there's that's another roller coaster ride. But I was I had a little edge. I always felt I had a little edge, and uh, I love to gamble. There's something inside. <laughs> it was just supposed to be for me. You know, my father was a gambler. He taught me how to gamble. My whole life, I've been fatu- infatuated by it and loved it. And so, um, and he taught me, don't be a sucker, don't lose. So I, I figured out a way to win. I really did. And so that game was great, and that led me into the World Poker Tour. They were looking for a host commentator to work with Mike Sexton. And I got that job when poker really wasn't doing anything. No one even knew. And that, that exploded. You know, the whole show exploded. I've been doing that 19 seasons now. So that's been my main focus. And I feel I'm not playing poker as much. I don't like that ups and downs, but I'm happy to doing what I did. And I think I was supposed to be doing that at the time. Now, do I gamble now? I don't gamble much anymore. It's so weird. Life, I don't need to gamble anymore because I'm, I'm just enjoying everything. And it's like, that money that I'm going to win isn't going to change my life. So I'd rather get a good night's sleep. And uh, that's what I'm doing. In the meantime, yes, I'm writing some different things. We just made a movie, Seven Days to Vegas, which is a film. You can get it on Amazon now, actually. And it's a comedy about uh, my game. It's based on that on the truth of my game in the 90s, how it got bigger and bigger, and how we made crazy bets. We'd make crazy prop bets. And one of the bets I made, and it was for real, 
was that I could walk, me. I could walk from L.A. to Las Vegas in seven days for a half a million dollars. That was the original bet that I made. In the movie, we fabricate. We, a lot of it's fictionalized, too. And in the movie, it's for millions of dollars. And that's what the film was about, Seven Days to Vegas. Made the film. It's out now. And uh, I'm proud of the movie. I think it's, it's good. It's fun. It makes you want to hang out with these kind of people and uh, show a, a slice of life that I really know well. So that's that film. And then I got other things coming up, which I'll be creating and possible series and other stuff like that, that that are fun. I think through like your, your whole life, you, you've kind of realized what the rules of the game are. And then you found a way to play outside of them. You found your edge some way when you didn't have like a support system in tennis, you found a way, maybe it was 19 espressos during one match, um, big coffee drinker. And, but you always found a way to, to make the game your own and metaphorical game. So you made life your own. So in the poker world, you found a way to make the game your own and kind of, you know, win at whatever yeah. you were doing. You kind of always found your edge. How would you describe that? That's a very good point. I'm lucky enough in the things I've succeeded in to find that little edge. I think I'm always looking for the edge, how I could be my best. What are other people not looking at maybe in anything they do? So in other words, I have interest in maybe getting a restaurant. I, I like restaurants, good food. And I think if I was a restaurant person, I think I'd kind of get my edge there too. I'd say, hey, I love cleanliness. I love kitchens that you can see and I would make it a mac. I have a dream about what's the perfect thing, whether it's a restaurant or uh, a, a, a poker game, you know, a home game or whatever it is. So I think you're right. Whatever I want to get into, I really want to read a lot about it, study it, and Use my gut of what's working and what doesn't and how I can make that better. That's a great point of using your gut. And it just goes back to trusting what people say. It's so easy to allow what people say to deter us from what we actually want to do and what we think is a good idea. But we got to trust ourselves. That's what I learned with writing the book. I, you know, there's one point where I was like, what? I mean, there's many points where I questioned what I was doing. But when I actually like read something that pretty much told me while I was on the trip that like I had no shot of writing the book and being a travel writer or anything, but just getting over what other people tell you you should be doing and trusting yourself over anybody. It's a great point. When I did the break, the movie, the break coach and this young kid, he tries to bring him to the flushing meadows and it's, it's a fun movie, but I did a mistake at the time. It was a good screenplay. And I wrote a lot of stuff that I originally uh, used on the circuit unorthodox techniques and I put that in the film of the break but I also made the mistake of saying oh but we need a good rivalry and they got to be sort of like the karate kid kids and I made that cliche and I put that and that hurt I look back at the film and I go the only thing that was weak was that if I would have just kept my imagination open and didn't go with the cliche just go with your heart go with the truth the fun entertaining truth then you'll have a better project and that's what I did with seven days to Vegas I said I don't want anything stupid I don't want anything uh, forced in there, no cliches, keep it fun, and it's a, it's a better film, uh, in my opinion, for my writing style, Seven Days to Vegas, because of that. So I'm learning, and I think we all learn um, how to write, don't listen to people, because they'll say, hey, oh, it needs this and that, and where's your hook there? Don't, don't listen to them, go with your gut, be creative, and if you believe in yourself and you're good, you, you'll probably make a better project. So, especially in writing, I mean, for people listening and writing, Neil Gaiman, who's, he wrote, he's a uh, interesting author, just like kind of random stuff, more fiction. Um, but he says, if people tell you your book needs work or whatever you're working on, you should listen. But if they tell you why it needs work, 
don't listen to them. Yeah. Basically, when they start giving you like advice of like what to actually do, yeah. then close your ears. But yeah, it's a great point that, I mean, be open to people's advice, but you got to follow your gut instincts. Another thing about writing, and you're great at that, and what you did was so original, uh, but in screenplays too, you can make that mistake. And uh, Quentin Tarantino, great writer director, he just says, if you're going to do whatever you're doing, make it the best that you could possibly do. So if you're going to do a fight scene, uh, on a bridge, make it the best one, the most creative one ever done. Just keep you know driving yourself to that point, and that's what I like to do now with screenplays and anything I'm going to write. I'm going to try. I'm thinking outside the box. What is the most original thing you can think of? What's the craziest thing that could happen? And that really helps me in my writing. And it's more fun that way. Yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Tarantino has some crazy, crazy scenes yep. where you're thinking, "How did he come up with this?" I um, know. I would love to ask you, what is your creative process like? It sounds like you love coffee. Yeah. So when you sit down to write, what does it look like? Where are you? What time of day? Yeah, I, I'm a morning person, so I'll get up at 6. I like to write in the morning or longhand. You know, now with the iPhone, I'll, I'll you know, just record it. And, uh, and that's it. I get a lot of notes down, it's constant notes all the time. After 11 o'clock, I'm done. Forget me. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm into a whole other realm of, you know. Bitch. Yeah, just not the same person. So I like, I'm a morning person, like to get inspired with stuff like that. I also like writing partners, even though it's all my idea and I'm, I, I kind of need someone to bounce it off and they help me. And I wrote Seven Days to Vegas with my buddy, Steve Alper. And he, listen, he gave me some good ideas and we bounced each other off. And it's fun to write with a writing partner. At least for me, it is. Does that mean that you guys are in the same room and you're telling him what you're writing or you're say, saying it out loud and he's providing feedback or you guys both write like separate pieces and then merge them? We're in the same room and we are just spitballing. I say, hey, okay, well, what, what could be the hook? You know, with the, with the poker movie, I said, okay, it's about, you know, it's about the game and the game gets bigger and there's a rivalry between one player who's a big director and the one character, Duke, the, my character. And, but what could, it can't come down to the big game at the end. That's so typical. I said, what could be different? And it took me about two or three weeks of spitballing until finally I went, wait a second, I made a bet once, a real bet, that I could walk from LA to Las Vegas in seven days. I go, let's make that. He sets him up with that. He wants to get all his money back, so he makes that hook and he proposes that bet. And that's the hook. And it took a long time, but that was... That's the strength of that originality of that of, of that screenplay. So I, I think it takes time, and I like to spitball with a creative person, and like no ideas are bad, you know, just keep throwing it out there, and that's just my style. How about you guys? Yeah, I mean, first we we do that kind of thing just with coming up with stuff for the sh podcast, and um, we have our creative sessions. We kind of just we write, we read, we work on podcast stuff, but. I get it from you, big morning person, five on a good day, I'm up and at him, uh, get the coffee going, a little workout in, and then I, I'm genuinely excited to write. Like I almost don't want to do anything, I'm just waiting to do it. Isn't that the greatest? It's, and I know if the reason I write and the reason for any of it is just because I'm excited and whether success comes or doesn't, it doesn't really matter because I'm just doing it because I genuinely love doing this and that's well that's that's why it's working so well and by the way when i was writing i i at the end of the day at three or four o'clock in the afternoon we're writing i go oh, where did the day go i could keep writing <laughs> that's how much i enjoy it right when it's going good when you have something good to write about or at least you think you do and i think giving like giving yourself time too to let ideas unfold a bit like it's amazing just one day you'll feel like nothing's coming and it's like you know it's just kind of a foggy day 
in your mind. And then the next morning, just like while what you've been mulling over, it's just clarified and clear. And just the next day, it's, it, everything just kind of comes together. So I think it's just fun to be kind of working on something in your mind and like actually be thinking about something that interests you. Yep. So just consider what, what actually just is interesting to you. And yeah. if you don't write, just maybe start writing about, I've kind of been inspired by this book I'm looking at, um, Autumn by Carl Ove Nosgaard. And he's writing to his unborn daughter about just the everything in li- like just simple things in life, like porpoises, a, a tin can. And he writes like two pages on each like 50 different just objects pretty much and unpacks the meaning within each thing. And that's so that's inspired me to start doing that. I wrote a essay about pavement. And, you know, it kind of branches off into different stories. And <laughs> this is a long winter day. <laughs> time on your hands, apparently. <laughs> no. no. Uh, well, kind of just, you know, there's meaning under everything. What do, what do different colors mean to you? Interesting. And when you just kind of think about these things, everything around us and everything that we do has some deep we gotta get a real job this is why you haven't been picking up my cause right about pavement <laughs> three pages in on pavement. no but that's good because if you don't even have, if you just start there it'll open up your mind and you never know where, where it comes from that just start right? thinking about what is actually interesting to you and when you start that you'll see that much more than maybe you previously imagined mm-hmm. i totally i'm also a morning person and i i truly think there's something magical about being up early and just for me, at least, I'm, I filter myself so much less early in the morning. I just feel more connected to God, source, whatever it is, that creative energy. And I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll, I'll write something in the morning that feels so authentic and vulnerable and actually me. And then I'll reread it at like 8 p.m. And I'm like, I can't believe I wrote this. Like I, was, I actually put this out there. And I think there's just so much power of like before you're before that little voice in your head can wake up and tell you not to do it, to just get up early and write. For sure. And I even like, I sometimes, because I feel the exact same way, if I write something in the morning, I'm like, okay, just post it. Because I know later I'll be scared. Like after I look over it and like I'm, the day has taken its toll, like I won't want to, I'll be embarrassed or something. Or just like let it rest for the day and then revisit it tomorrow morning when that same energy is back and post it then. But yeah, something about the morning that it is intoxicating. Yeah. So a question I have for you, Vincent, you mentioned earlier that your dad and your mom didn't really give you a ton of advice growing up, but I want to ask if there's any advice you've gotten from other, other adult figures or just friends in your life that's really stuck with you and made a difference. Not much. Uh, honestly, <laughs> I wish I had more advice. That was good advice. My, my father said things like, you know, he would just say, don't be a sucker, you know, <laughs> finish school, you know, um, uh, you don't get nothing for nothing. I mean, all these New York things, you know, and, uh, but, but basically he was, um, he, oh, you know, he said, don't, don't be, a, don't be a bum. You can't say a bum anymore, but don't be a bum. You got to work. You got to get to work. You know, I don't like laziness. He, so these things, we listened to my father, you know, because first of all, my father and mother were great parents. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. They loved us so much and they showed us a great life. And so we would always listen to them completely. Um, so he gave us those little commonsensical things. All, you know, don't ever turn down a job. Be there on time. I mean, all these things. And when he says it, I did it and listened to it. And those are great things. For advice, but if I would have said, "Hey, Dad, I'm going to be a writer," he would say, "You can't do it right." He would discourage certain things because he just didn't. That was out of his realm that anything like that is possible. He thought maybe I could be an actor. I was doing well as an actor. 
didn't think I was going to be a tennis pro, but when I started making it, he said, oh, yeah, you're doing great. Maybe you should be practicing a little bit more. You know, <laughs> He was on the team, but he didn't believe because he came from uh, New York where and his parents, things were, they were just getting by, you know. The dreams weren't really happening all that much. So um, today, we, we, I think myself and your mom and Eileen, we believe dreams are very, very possible, and you can do it. And uh, we're lucky that we could think that. But anyway, they were great. My parents were great parents, and they did give us certain advice, but, and it turned out okay. So we'll, we'll wrap up here. Um, you know, you've had many successes in your life. You've had failures. You've seen it all. What does success mean to you? Oh, boy. Success is really, are you content? Are you happy with your life? Am I, am I, are the people around me happy? Are they, uh, uh, is everybody, uh, is there a lot of love with your friends and connections? That's, that's, that's the only thing. Are you doing the right things in this world? Are you cheating anybody? Are you doing the right things? That's important. So that's success in, in my opinion. Um, and just uh, appreciating life and, and, God and, and being in a place where we are right now. That's it. Beautiful. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Pop. You know, I think we were gonna excited to get you on eventually and made it happen. So great. I'm sorry to be talking so much about myself. <laughs> I know it's <laughs> I kept rambling on, but thank you so much. It's just nice to talk to you guys and you're both doing great with this podcast. And it is, it's inspirational. So I think people will listen to it and get so much out of it. I know they already have. So beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for everyone tuning in with us today. We love you guys. Love y'all.